On this episode of the Pats Podcast, we are dialing up the pressure of rehab. Stick around. Let's be better athletic trainers. Before we start, I'd like to thank today's sponsor, Sway Medical, for their support of the Pats Podcast and athletic trainers in the state of Pennsylvania. For more information, visit them at www.swaymedical.com. I want to invite our guest to say hi on the show today, Dan Lawrence. He's the director of sports medicine at Ortho Kansas and Lawrence Memorial Hospital in Lawrence, Kansas. Uh, Dan, thank you for coming by. Gentlemen, thanks for having me and great to be here today. We're excited to, for this topic. Um, Dan, let's uh, have you tell us a little bit about yourself like where you went to school, what you do for work, and how you got into blood flow restriction training. Sure. I'm originally from the suburban Chicago. Uh, I actually went to high school where Rudy went to high school. So his brother, Frank, in the movie was my strength coach growing up because I did some no college things. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, that's where I'm from. I went to Grand Valley State for undergrad. I majored in uh, health sciences with emphasis in athletic training. So I did my athletic training in undergrad. I'm a dinosaur because that was back in the days when you could do curriculum or intern. But I was uh, I was an OG. I did the curriculum. I went all the way through with that. So then uh, I got my master's in PT at Grand Valley State. And while I was in PT school, I was a high school athletic trainer for two years at a at a high school in Michigan. Uh, lots of fun. That 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 school. The uh, the boys. We had a, a state championship. Um, they went to the championship in both football and basketball in the same year. So that was a great run we had. Uh, and then uh, worked outside. I worked outside of Chicago for a few years as a PT. Um, I went to Duke University to Sports Physical Therapy Fellowship, uh, and then from there I got a job as an assistant athletic trainer and physical therapist for the Kansas City Chiefs. So that's what brought me to the Kansas, uh, Missouri area. Uh, I uh, got a, a DPT from University of St. Augustine in 2009, and uh, I had a private practice for seven years in Kansas City area with three clinics, uh, and then now I'm the director of sports medicine, uh, as I said, at Ortho Kansas. And, Lawrence Memorial Hospital, and uh, I, I supervise our uh, sports medicine rehab facility, but also uh, our athletic trainers out in the schools um, and within our system. So uh, I suppose that uh, got me to this point now. <laughs> that's awesome. I did, that, I did that, as best that's... I could to summarize about 23 <laughs> years of experience. Yeah, so. yeah, it gets hard to do after a while, right? I, I, mm-hmm. I love that uh, recap, though. That's a, that's a good history. Thank you. So, um, Dan, tell us a little bit about uh, blood flow restriction training. Um, I, I'm curious to know how, how you got into utilizing the technique and um, tell our listeners, you know, what what is blood flow restriction training and what are some advantages to it to, to why they should maybe implement it in their clinical practice? So uh, the the idea really started like most great ideas by happenstance in the 1960s. Uh, there's a guy by the name of Yoshiaki Sato. He he was, uh, I'll be very brief on the history here, but essentially yeah. he was he was at a Buddhist, Buddhist memorial kneeling for several hours. His calves got really swollen. And um, you know, for whatever reason, he, he got hurt in a skiing accident uh, not too much longer after that. And really because of the swelling, it kind of made him think, hey, what if I do something to prevent atrophy? So he really, he really started like cinching off his legs with belts. Uh, and this is kind of where blood flow restriction training was born, which doesn't sound very medical. I get it. But, <laughs> but he evolved it over time. And he actually became the, really the first one to do it. It's called Katsu training. Uh, okay. I got into it. Uh, really, it was, you know, growing or coming up, you know, the journals that I looked at all the time were American Journal of Sports Medicine, Journal of mm-hmm. Athletic Training, JOSPT, Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery, etc. 
Well, a lot of the blood flow restriction stuff was in, you know, tier second tier journals that I didn't really, I shouldn't say second tier, but journals that I didn't reference all the time, like Journal of Applied Physiology. It just wasn't something that I looked at a lot. You saw it more, frankly, bodybuilding literature and strength yeah. literature. Yeah. So yep. that's where I started looking at it and, you know, reading on it. And I was like, oh, this is interesting. It, it seemed, admittedly, when I first started reading about it, it was more, you know, kind of seemed like more meathead kind of training, right? Because that's, yeah. that's what bodybuilders used to do, you know, time for the major pump, right? Yep. So. Um, uh, I presented that this idea at a PT meeting in like 2013, I think. And it was kind of, okay. kind of received with some skepticism. Like, are, are you kidding me? You know, yeah. just, oh my gosh, clots and you know, all this, you know, this mm-hmm. is, doesn't seem like something for us. But then, you know, uh, we started to see, there was a lot of, there was a lot of work done at the center for the intrepid down in Texas. I'm sure everybody, uh, you know, knows about, uh, the history there. And, uh, then in, it really, I think, took off when we saw Dwight Howard using it uh, on ESPN for his rehab. And then that was in 2015. I think from there on out, it's been hotter than sunburn. So that's pretty much uh, how I got into it. And, um, you know, I've been uh, trying to read as much as I can on it and implement it in practice. And so we are today, I guess. Yeah, that that uh, origin story is really unique. I've never heard that part of it. Um, like you said, I, I originally was introduced to it through the bodybuilding world, and and I probably started picking it up about 2013 as well. Um, so that's it's curious. I, um, you know, that that's probably when it really started to come to light in the in the clinical sense, right? Um, and that's and that's really what's quite re- real quick. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Yeah, that's no, go ahead. Good. That's quite remarkable about this. And this is one of the first things I always say about blood flow restriction training. I mean, we're all athletic trainers here. How many modalities do we use or our athletes ask us to provide for them that don't have a shred of evidence? Right. Now, again, yeah. I, again, I've got myself in trouble for on social media because I'm one of those guys having been in professional sports, division one sports. I was an athletic trainer intern with the Chicago White Sox and undergrad. We all know how athletes think. If they think it works, it did. Yep. So, you know, I've said before, look, if I had gotten some social media heat back uh, when Michael Phelps was swimming in the Olympics because I, I dare, cause people were freaking out about cupping and the bruises yeah. on his shoulder. And I said, look, if Michael Phelps asked me to put peanut butter and jelly on his shoulder before his gold medal race, I'll say, you want, you want Skippy or you want Skippy, Jeff, you want Chunky or Stu, right? Like stay out of their way, right? Yep. Well, well, you know, with blood flow restriction training, it's really just the opposite. I mean, if you go back and the, the, the research on this has been, you know, in the 2000s, you know, and if you look at its close cousin, ischemic preconditioning, uh, it even goes further back than that. So we have a lot of good science, not only the science behind it, but the clinical application and a number of studies, too. So, you know, this is something that uh, athletes will ask for. And you actually, you know, you don't feel weird providing it to them because there's some legitimate science behind it. So uh, that's why I think it, it's a really great thing. And I'm trying to, to spread the word as much as I can. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, you know, that being said, there is science behind it. Right. But I, you know, I guess talk, talk about the science is, sure. is there, um, you know, one, what does the science say that it does? Right. And then sure. we can then get into maybe some of the underlying mechanisms of what we think or why we think it does what it does. Right. Sure. So I, I don't think I, because I, I got on my little tangent there. I don't think I finished yeah. the uh, your your last question. But what is it basically? It's, yeah. um, it's occluding and not uh, not cutting off blood flow. I think everybody they hear that and they immediately want to go to cutting off blood flow. No, no, no. You're occluding venous flow. You are restricting arterial flow and exercising under those conditions is basically what happens. And the whole idea behind it is that 
we all work with athletes that are uh, in various phases of rehab that aren't appropriate for usual loads that we would, you know, we know what it takes to get people strong. We know what it takes to build hypertrophy, but we also know that in those early phases doing a, a one RM estimate just isn't practical in a four to six week ACL. So what this allows us to do is to work on strength and hypertrophy in a lower load setting because you're working out under uh, uh, limited blood flow, basically. So uh, you get similar, the research has shown you get similar or greater benefits in hypertrophy and strength training when you compare it to typical higher load training. I think that's probably the best elevator summary I can give as to what uh, blood flow restriction training does and what it is. Yeah. Yeah. So basically we can, we can get the quad in, in a ACL rehab to, to grow without having to use a lot of load on it. Right. So exactly. we're, we're exactly. minimizing the stress to the, to the, to the injured tissue, but we can still work on hypertrophy training. Exactly. Um, so yeah, why don't, why don't you jump into maybe some mechanisms then? So what, why, okay. how do, why do we think that works? Why, why is cutting off blood flow to an area really going to be beneficial for hypertrophy? Okay, so uh, we haven't definitively found exactly what the what the mechanism is, but let me say this first. So it's really important we talk about BFR that understand a lot of the benefits that are talked about, increased growth hormone uh, production, increase in vascular endothelial growth factor, increase in mTORC1 pathway, uh, increase in insulin-like growth factors. All of these things are, are improved with typical strength training that we've always done. So it's really, really important that when we, we talk about blood flow restriction training, that we understand that this happens with normal training. The best part about this is, is these things happen under a low load environment, right? right. So what I want to really convey is that we don't want to abandon principles we've been using for years. Okay. With that being said, uh, I'd say two of the primary mechanisms are uh, the uh, working in a close to fatigue state, the more, the more effort you put in, the more closer to fatigue you get, you recruit more high threshold motor units, which are type two fibers. Mm -hmm. And uh, we know that working towards failure, uh, you build up those metabolic waste products, lactate that leads to hypertrophy. So I would say largely it's the, um, the, 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 the lactate accumulation, as well as the working towards to fatigue because of the high threshold motor units. There also is an, a hormonal response as well that if you look at the studies, there's increased growth hormone and, and some of those other things I mentioned before. Those are probably the two main ones. There certainly is with vasodilation, a influx of blood and, and cellular goodies uh, after you release the, the cuff as well. So um, I would say largely right now, those are probably our, our main mechanisms. Uh, and again, just for a, a fun podcast to not be getting too into the weeds, I'd say that's probably the best way to summarize all putting people to sleep. Yeah. Well, so I'm a super, I'm a super nerd. So I, I love this stuff, um, especially muscle hypertrophy research. Um, curious, do you know the, the, gro the growth hormone, um, the increases in growth hormone, how long that lasts afterwards? Like, is that around for, you know, a couple hours, a couple minutes, a couple days? It looks like right now, um, it, it's relatively in the like it doesn't prolong for several days after um, yeah. it, it looks like it's it's a relatively short-lived effect but the point is is that you could do this several times a week you know right. we all we all know that you know if you go heavy on monday you're not probably going heavy again at least till wednesday mm -hmm. well now with this low load environment you could literally do this every day so you kind of have almost a, a, a quote unquote a stream of, of of growth hormone going through the 
through your body at, at any, you know, at any certain time. And that's another thing too, is that we're starting to learn more about systemic effects. Right. You know, that if you, um, if you do it on one thigh, that there's benefits to the other side, or maybe even some proximal benefits as well. So that, again, this could serve, could very well serve to be a, a good thing in the long term. but we're still learning more about it. Yeah, no, that's super cool. Um, I, I'm just, you know, again, I've been, I've, I've dove into the uh, hypertrophy research and from my understanding that, you know, yes, we do get that growth hormone increase with normal um, weight training, but it doesn't last very long. So we're not really sure that that's what drives the actual tissue. Right. And, and same thing yeah. with, with mechanical um, or, or tissue damage, right. We always used to think that we had to damage the, the tissue to get it to grow. And I think we, we kind of know now that that's not necessarily, or it's not necessary to, to make muscles grow. Um, and I think what you said about the, the, um, fatiguing the the low threshold motor units first right with the ischemia that's right. going to force you to use those those um higher threshold motor units and then we get the whole muscle hypertrophy right um right I love what you said about being able to use it multiple times a day i didn't really think thought about that that's that's a great point well and, and also to remember that if you go to that fatigue point you're if you're going to failure like you really are getting you know you got their best effort right like how many times do we do exercises with people? And again, if you're dosing people the right way, if you're really working on strength, if they get to six, you know, if they can do more than eight, you know, that you're probably not going heavy enough, right? So yep. the idea here is that if you go to failure, like true failure, uh, you know that pretty much every motor unit's on board and you know you got the all, all the muscle head, so to speak, and that's yep. what the stimulus is. Yeah. So effort, effort is the key here. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Right. And it, and it seems like with the lower loads, we're not getting as much actual muscle damage so you can recover from it quicker, like you said. And now you can do it multiple times a day. Precisely. And you could even do a heavy session in the morning and do BFR in the afternoon. Yeah, like that, that's what this is, because you're on a, a lower load uh, environment for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And then grabbing that growth hormone in the afternoon and with that lighter session could help with the recovery from the heavier one in the morning. That's that's brilliant. Right. And I and I will and I'll just want to add one thing, too, on this is that remember, as far as our and I, I emphasize this every time I speak on the topic our normal traditional training. We get stronger through neural, mechanical, and metabolic adaptations. This is really through metabolic and mechanical. The yep. only way that neural really happens is through heavy load training uh, and from testosterone. So we cannot abandon heavy load training, yep. right? So we have to make sure we keep doing that. I, I say all the time, you know, you can do BFR all summer if you want on your offensive lineman after his ACL, but in a gym far, far, far away, his opponent in the fall is crushing the squat with six plates on each side. And he's going to destroy your guy in the fall because you've been doing light load training all summer. So again, we cannot abandon our normal, uh, our normal pr principles. And yeah. Not that I haven't said that enough already. <laughs> no, no, but you're, you're right. Right. So, so maximal strength is task, task specific, right? So for sure. Yeah. If you're not lifting heavy, you're not going to lift heavy. Um, you know, you can get the muscle bigger, but it's still not going to have that maximal strength and power that, yeah. that we're looking for in the athletic um, realm for sure. I love that. So, um, Dan, swinging back to some of the research, um, has there been, have you guys found out if there's been any like negative effect from it or any concerns or cautions that we need to watch out for when we're um, looking to implement this with one of our patients? So when you think uh, negative effect, I think what everybody goes to right away is uh, the effect of clotting. Um, and that's the one thing, rightfully so, that everybody's kind of concerned about, particularly if you're doing this two, three weeks post-op. 
uh, the literature has not shaken out on that. And in fact, there is some data showing that it may actually be protective. For those people that are worried about clots, just remember surgical tourniquets are kept on a lot longer at a lot higher pressures. And the uh, clot rate is like 0.04%. So it's uh, <laughs> uh, it's probably, an, it's a reasonable, but an unfounded concern. So I would say that's the, the, the potential negative. Other than that, uh, a lot of the quote unquote negative effects are very short term. So maybe some short term numbness, some discomfort, maybe some patechiae, you know, from the squeezing of the tissue, um, you know, maybe a little bit of residual pain after from a, from a, what appears like a tough workout. Uh, so that's really the side effects uh, that you might get, which again are short lived in regards to, uh, you know, indications and precautions and things like that. You know, this is another like any modality in that wrong hands not used wisely can lead to trouble. I mean, cars, I mean, name anything that by itself is a, isn't a problem, but within the wrong hands is a bad, bad thing. Right. So uh, with with this, I would say that, you know, talk to physicians if you're unsure. But people with history of DVT, people with uh, a history of hypertension, varicose veins, those that are pregnant, uh, poor circulation or poor vascularity, somebody with diabetes. I mean, these are things you and probably not a lot of stuff that we see in, in our training room environments, let's be honest. You know, but what I tell people all the time, like we got to use our heads. Like if you have somebody that's morbidly obese, hypertension, diabetic and a total knee replacement, you shouldn't be putting cuffs on this person. I'm sorry. It's just there's other things we can do. The risk reward, at least for me, isn't there. Others might be okay with it. Um, but that, I think that's just, again, being smart with um, who you do it on. Any um, any thoughts on different age groups of our patients? Okay, so tomorrow I'm actually doing a podcast about should we use this in the pediatric population. <laughs> uh, but they've done studies on this in older population for, and they've shown improved time up and go scores, improved stair power, improvements in overall function. I mean, there have been studies where they've just put cuffs on and elderly folks have walked and they had an improved, uh, not only six minute walk test, but also strength and hypertrophy improvements. So uh, you don't have to do, uh, you know, weight with this a lot. You can do this cycling on an exercise bike, uh, walking, or sometimes, like I said, doing absolutely nothing if you get into the ischemic preconditioning area of things. So, and that's a whole nother topic, but uh, <laughs> like I said, you don't have to necessarily be in a weight room to get good results here. Yeah, that, that's curious with the, so when you're talking the, the conditioning piece of it, um, so if you're just like, say you, you, you cuff somebody up and you, you go for a walk, are we seeing hypertrophy from that or we're just seeing more aerobic fitness from that? They have, yeah, there have been studies to show that. And um, and as I was saying earlier about the cardiac side of, you know, because they used to do the ischemic pre, and that's why I didn't pay much attention to ischemic preconditioning either because it was in cardiac patients. I don't see that stuff. But that's what, that essentially, again, I'm a simple guy. I try and dial everything down because I'm just a, a simple guy. I don't try and impress everybody with uh, verbose language or unnecessary words. I tell people all the time, the ischemic preconditioning piece and the aerobic piece is basically teaching the heart and the vascular system, the cardiovascular system to do more with less that you're, you know, you're limited on the blood flow and you're asking them to ride an exercise bike at varying intensities with less blood flow to nourish the tissues, right. To, or to replenish the tissues. So like I said, you're teaching the body to do more with less. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's why we're seeing that angiogenesis to, to increase the, the vessels and try to get more there, even though they don't have it to get there. Exactly. Um, that's pretty cool. Because um, I was trying to think through that too. With, with when I was reading through the article, it, it talked about the aerobic conditioning piece, um, and without oxygen or, or with minimal oxygen, you, you know, you're not gonna, you know, you're 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 forcing that ischemia. But at the same time, my brain, I'm thinking, okay, well, I can't get oxygen in there, so it's not truly aerobic. Um, so you're you're basically kind of going more 
I don't want to say anaerobic, but I guess you kind of are um, quicker. Well, it's increasing your cardiac output, increasing your stroke volume, those kind of things. So uh, that's where you're probably getting more of the longer term benefits uh, okay. from the, uh, I think, probably making the system more efficient is probably the best way to say it. Yeah, yeah. Like you said, doing more with less. That makes sense. Oh, that's cool. Um, so, you know, next piece we, we wanted to talk about were the different devices that you might use. Um, you know, if, if we talk old school bodybuilding and they're just taking like rubber bands and strapping them around their arm, probably not the best idea. But um, can you maybe talk through some of the different devices that are out there and, and what you might recommend? Um, you know, based yeah, off that's of, a, yeah, yeah, that's a ahead. really that's a really great question. I get asked that all the time. Um, so first off, you know, I did a I did a talk last night for um, the the Colorado PT Association, and they again a one hour webinar on BFR, what it is, how to use it, blah blah blah. And one of the fir the first question was, is can you use floss bands or TheraBand? And I, I don't recommend that uh, for sure. Yeah, I would say that the lowest budget way to do this, and it's the least accurate as far as pressures go, is weightlifting knee wraps. Okay. There's there's various ways to do it. It's called practical BFR. Um, there was a 2013 study that. Um, they actually confirmed via ultrasound uh, of the occlusion of venous flow uh, at a 7 out of 10 perceptive pressure. If you've tried this before, it is nowhere near uh, as hard as using a normal cuff is. But you know what? If you have a small rural high school and there's nothing in the budget and you want to use this for your kids, this is a potential way to go. And really the costs go up from there. I mean, the Cadillac unit is is $5,000. I'm not quite sure you want me to name specific units here, but- Yeah, um, you don't have to, no. Yeah, so, but there are ones that are far less. Uh, what I would suggest is, there's a couple things. So I would say after the elastic knee wraps, uh, there are other ones where you could, they come with a, basically a blood pressure monitor. Yep. And what you would do is you would pump up the cuff till, and you palpate pedal pulse if you're doing the lower body. When the pulse goes away, you would take 60% of that pulse. And that's what you train at. And normally you wanna be at 80 if they can tolerate it, but the idea is that it's not as exact as some of the personalized pressure systems. There are a couple of them out there now that are personalized pressure, and, and, and there is one that's much more affordable than the Cadillac version. Um, so, and then the next version would be Doppler. So you could do the same thing I just said, but use a Doppler, and then when the pulse goes away, you would train at that pressure. Uh, and then obviously the next level would be a personalized system where you get uh, individual pressures and understand those pressures might change from day to day or even within a day, depending on when you do your session. So your pressure might be a different training pressure if you have a morning session versus an afternoon one on another day. So really everything falls within there. It really depends on, I tell people all the time, look, you got to get the stakeholders at the table, your administrators, you're, you know, if you're a staff athletic trainer, you got to get the head athletic trainer. All the all the people in the, on the ivory tower have got to sit down and talk about it. You do not need certification. There is no yeah. one system that is approved by the FDA. That is a huge misnomer and, and something you have to understand. There, there's two items that are listed by the FDA, but there are a number of commercial products out there that you could use. It really is. It really does just come down to your to your risk tolerance. Uh, and educating yourself on on how to use it the right way, the right population, those like all the stuff we've already talked about. And that's like any other modality that we use. Okay. We know not to do ultrasound on a fetus, right? Like a random example here. So right. I'm just saying like, you know, like anything else, you have to educate yourself. Um, but I, I really want to convey, you don't have to have a certification. You don't have to only buy FDA listed or approved stuff. Um, there's, there's lots of options for you. And it's good that there are, because again, not everybody can afford to buy 
the the higher end units um you know they don't have a a major league or nfl or nba budget so to speak yeah so on on that note with um with being able to to kind of educate ourselves on best practice with it what are some of the things we we should kind of keep in the back of our head for best practice so we can kind of assess the source that we're getting at so first thing i i always it's always athlete and uh patient education explain what you want to do uh, explain the reason why, explain the side effects, tell them it's going to be uncomfortable. Okay. Uh, and uh, the reason, you know, again, if they, they understand the reasons pretty quickly, but it's just whether or not they can tolerate it. I have had, uh, uh, high school females love this and purchase their own, but I've also had a college heavyweight wrestlers say, I can't do this, man. It's making me nauseous. So okay. you, you, so my suggestion there is if you're a little bit of trepidation or if you're getting a little bit of a skeptic eye from your athlete, maybe try onboarding them with lower pressures. If they can tolerate higher pressures, they, you should have, you should do that. Um, but if you're a little skeptical or if they are, or if you're not sure if they can tolerate it, there's evidence showing that 40%, 60%, you get benefits too. Uh, so start at 40 or 50% occlusion in the lower body and build up to 80, uh, but they might not tolerate the 80, like I said. So I, would, I think something's better than nothing. Uh, so that's the first piece. The second piece is is um, the way you do it is you have to establish what the load is. Now, there's a couple ways to do that. You can um, use the other leg, like the well leg as a reference leg, as a 1RM. So if you do seated knee extensions, you could do a 1RM on the other leg. And then you take 20% of that and work up from there. Um, you can certainly... Uh, uh, you could you could do two to three on the uh, omni res scale is one way to do it. A number of studies have shown that way. Um, you could do a 10 RM on the involved side. Just understand the further you get way away from one RM, the less uh, accurate that estimate is. So that that's one way to do it as well. And then really it's just kind of picking the exercises. Normally you if you're doing strength and hypertrophy training, you are occluded. Like one exercise takes anywhere from five to 10 minutes. And then usually by that time, especially if you go to failure, people are going to need a break. So deflate for a couple minutes and then you can reinflate and do something else. Uh, cart- like if you're doing cycling, that's a little bit different because you're not like trying to go to failure. Uh, most of the papers have, have put the cuffs on for about 20 minutes with cycling at about a 50% heart rate reserve. Um, so you okay. could do that. I get asked all the time, you know, should you stop at 20? Can you go 30? Can you go 40? We don't know yet. Um, I always say, because I get asked this a lot, well, Dan, if, if, if 80% for five minutes is good, why don't I do 50% for 40 minutes or something? Like, is that, but understand the point is, is the occlusion. The yeah. point is, is going to fatigue or failure with the strength and hypertrophy. So I can't tell you not to. I don't have a study to point to where they did 50% occlusion for 45 minutes and the other group did, you know, volume equated, uh, you know, three exercises, 80% occlusion at five minutes. You know what I mean? So I, I don't, I can't point you to that. I'm just saying what the purpose of it is, how it works and does it make sense to me? And it, it, I can't reconcile that currently, at least what we know. Um, usually the set and rep scheme is uh, most of the time it's a set of 30 and then three sets of 15 following with about 30 to 60 seconds rest in between. Because of the idea of failure, I encourage people to go to failure for one for sure, maybe two sets if they can tolerate it. But again, you're talking somebody that's uh, one of the types that, you know, would uh, have a, a broken leg and say, yeah, my leg doesn't feel good. Like, <laughs> yeah, you got a broken leg, dude. So, I mean, those are the types that can tolerate that. So I think yeah. your end of people that can do that is pretty small. 
But I think because of the failure piece, if you can go to failure for one of those sets, it's a good idea. So, boy, I went on a bit of a, a, bit of a rant there. I'll stop and just say <laughs> any more clarification or something I didn't cover. No, that was great. That was great. That was all, all the good stuff that we were, we were trying to hit on. So, um, yeah, I guess some of the clarification that I would have is like, um, you know, you, you, 20 minutes seems to be the max that's been researched. Is that what you're saying? Yes. And, and, and I say 20. And let me just say this as a side note. So I, I say this a lot, too, because people ask, how soon do you start post-op? And I definitely want to talk about this, too. Mm-hmm. So I, I've done probably for the last 15, 16 years, I've been a, a legal expert uh, on the side. And I've had a lot of plaintiff and defendant cases with athletic trainers and PTs. Um, one of the, the first thing you get asked by opposing counsel is what literature did you reference to form your opinions? So they're, of course, going to look for what studies have you used to you know, make your case or what, what statements you made. So what my point here is, is that right now we have studies that have used 20 minutes. Most of our studies right now on the strength condition or the strength hypertrophy side have started at two weeks post-op. So if you were to, for whatever reason, let's just say there are no cases, by the way, that I'm aware of against athletic trainers or PTs for using BFR and and something uh, adverse happening. However, there's always going to be one. But if they ask you, you know, uh, when did you start using this? Well, I started using it the day one post-op. And it's like, well, what references do you have? Well, there aren't many. <laughs> so, you know, I'm a I'm a wait two weeks guy for a couple of reasons. One, when's you know, where's the fire? <laughs> They're yeah. in a lot of pain. They have swelling. There's other mm-hmm. stuff to work on in that acute in those acute phases. Uh, you let the incisions close. I mean, I've talked to people that have had some knee effusion seep out the portals because they started so quickly. Let the incisions close. Like yeah. the Super Bowl is not tomorrow. Like yeah. let's be smart. You know, do we really is really waiting two weeks going to, you know, shave a month off your ACL rehab? I, I don't believe that's the case. So I think we have to be smart. So hopefully that answers your, your question about, um, you know, kind of some of these parameters. So if, yeah. you go, if you go past 20, I can't tell you not to. Right. But uh, it seems like you probably could, particularly under a lower pressure, if you're just exercising on a bike. And if you have somebody that's conditioned to using BFR, like anything else, you're going to adapt to the adapt right. or adapt to the stressor. Right. So if they get used to it, you might be able to do that. But I can't point you to a study saying that you should or shouldn't. I just know what's already been published. And I try and stay within those realms until I'm uh, shown or proven otherwise. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. I know I, whenever I use it, I always, um, one of the big things I always tell athletes is like, if you start to feel any numbness, tingling, any discomfort around the band or anything like that, let me know and, and we can adjust or, or take a break. Um, but yeah, my, usually the, the, the 30, 15, 15, 15 is pretty well tolerated. Uh, I don't have a lot of issues with that. Um, but yeah, no, that, that's super cool. I guess um, in, in the article that you had published, we didn't really even talk about that, but there is a, a really good uh, research article in the Journal of Athletic Training. That's that's how um, we, we got in contact with Dan. But um, you talked about using it for pain, and I'm just curious what your thoughts are on that or and what protocols you use for that. It didn't really go into that in the article. Um, any thoughts there? Gosh, boy, that article, I'll tell you what. we uh, It was brutal to do this topic in 50 references and 5,000 words. Uh, <laughs> I mean, we, we shaved, we probably halved the size of our article. Oh, wow. Um, okay. Yeah. Because they, and we let our edit, let the editors pick and choose what they wanted in it. So, you know, that's a really good question. And this goes into, uh, I'm going to go two parts in this. So on the pain side, uh, it's funny, you know, they, it does relieve pain, um, uh, because of the lower load environment. So there's been a couple studies where they did the higher load group and patellofemoral pain and then the you know, the lower load group and the lower load group had less pain, but 
you know, we have to look at the clinical outcomes. And there's definitely been some studies, like particularly with knee arthritis, that, yeah, it's great for pain and maybe they increase strength a little bit, but the function didn't change. Okay. Right. Yeah. So and, and so let's put this in athlete context. If you, you might increase strength and hypertrophy, that's great. They need that for for jumping and running and doing their sport. But understand that, you know, you did nothing to increase their three point percentage, their drive off the tee, their home run percentage, batting averages, uh, any of that stuff. So performance is probably indirectly related. And that's kind of along the same lines with the pain piece. Um, you know, I get asked a lot about, you know, because people with tendinopathies have a, a lot of pain. You know, should we be using BFR for tendinopathies? And this is one of the parts that got deleted from the article in the editing okay. process. You know, we know that and this is where, again, clinical decision making. And even though I'm a guy that we wrote articles on it, I, I sell a course online about BFR. I'm still a clinician first and I got to I got to reconcile it in my head. Tendons like tension and they like load. Yep. You're taking both of them away with BFR. It doesn't mean don't do it. I just, in my head, it's not my first choice. So, uh, but, you know, if you have somebody that can't tolerate higher loads, you want to put BFR on them. And the funny thing is, is that I always say to people, again, I'm a simple guy. I like to use analogies. It's almost like e-stim and the gate control thing. Like, you know, they have a, they have a sore body part and you put stim on it, uh, like IFC or whatever, and they feel the stim and it's noxious. And they kind of forget about their pain. Well, when you got the yeah. blood flow cuffs on, it's so uncomfortable. You forget about why you're in the rehab setting in the first place. Yeah. Right? So, yep. so there's probably a degree of, of pain relief with that, too. Yeah. So I think it's certainly uh, an option for pain relief because yeah. you can still rehab under a lower load setting. And we know in certain populations, higher loads are noxious. Okay, so so we don't really know a mechanism or, or even have a theory on a mechanism other than maybe gate control. Well, it's a great group three, four afferents, uh, okay. typically that's through those that that's why. Uh, and there's certainly there's literature out that I won't bore with all the details yeah. right now for this, but that's really what we think is happening with those. Okay. So, okay. um, yeah. And, pr- and from a protocol base, it's, it's the same protocol you're using yes. for, for anything yeah. else, but we're also seeing a pain relief, uh, uh, outcome as well. Yes. That's a that's a really good point. Actually, whether it's tendinopathy, strength, hypertrophy, or pain, the, as of now, we don't know uh, any different. Again, this podcast could sound entirely different in 10 years. I'm yep. just sharing I'm sharing with you what we know right now. Yeah, no, I appreciate nice. that. I appreciate that. It, it's interesting you had mentioned uh, earlier, and, and I don't know if this was anecdotal or, or, or just kind of off the cuff, but um, that the females, you've had females that have really enjoyed it. And, and I have had the same uh, experience in my, in my clinic as well, and that they, especially for the pain relief, like I've had, you know, quad strains, knee pain, patella tendonitis, all that kind of stuff. And just doing the, the, the BFR for some reason alleviates pain. I, again, same thing, like you said, no function, no strength. Like it's, it's the same day. It's like, you know, these, these short-term injuries, but they seem to, to get some type of pain relief from it. So I think that's super cool and something to maybe do some further research on. It is. Yes. No, there's, there's no doubt that they like it. I, I have a litany of people that have uh, purchased units for themselves to do at home. Uh, and there's probably a degree of, uh, they, you know, they, it's kind of like a lot of these, uh, high intensity training. Like you, you show up, you're a dad or a mom, you show up for your workout class and they crush you for 30 minutes and you feel like you, it's kind of the way this is. You feel like you had a, a crazy workout and you did it in a pretty short period of time. There's probably a degree of that. And there's probably a degree too that, Ooh, I'm doing the same machines that the pros are using, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, I love it. I love it. Um, Phil, you got anything else? I, th- I think we're good to go on. I, I know, Dan, your time's a little bit limited today. Oh, um, okay. I, I, uh, we definitely appreciate you uh, carving out the time for this. This has been some awesome information. Oh, um, kind of but let's, Thank you. Let's uh, hit up our lightning round. Um, 
So first question, you can go as far into depth or as um, scratching the surface as you want, but if you're not already in it, what is your dream job? Boy, oh boy. Um, th that's always a hard question because, you know, having been around, you know, 20 some years or so, you get into jobs that you think are going to be great. Like admittedly, like my NFL experience, uh, while I'm, it was a dream I set out to do and I achieved it, which was really cool. And it's a great story to share with my children that, you know, dad set a goal and he got there, but for a number of reasons, it just didn't turn out to be what I thought it would be. So, uh, but also other jobs that I didn't think would be, um, I would enjoy that much. I've, I've really thrived. I certainly love what I'm doing right now in a sense of, uh, being able to, uh, kind of direct sports medicine rehab. we got a 17,000 square foot facility here. Nice. Uh, I'm still got my, I'm still, um, have my fingers in the athletic training piece. And I'm also, you know, I got my start as a, I wasn't a very good one, but I got my start as a power lifter. So I have a lot of weight room experience too. We have, we, have, we have some transition going on in our performance training program right now, but I'm able to kind of use all three of those fields. And, you know, I, me personally, I've always felt that I, that's what's made me, uh, I feel effective at my job is that I got a good handle on all three disciplines. You know, I, and I enjoy using all three, I think. So any job I can use all three, but I'd say it's a dream job. It just allows me, um, you know, to have, to have balance at home and to be with my kids and be a present father and husband. So if I can combine all those three in an environment, I'll go wherever you, wherever you put me. <laughs> yeah. I love that answer. I love that answer. Family is always important, but yeah, being able to, to utilize all those skills that you have is, is great. Um, so when you're not doing or utilizing all three of those skills, um, uh, what do you do for fun, Dan? Gosh, I wish I could tell you I had a really cool, like <laughs> rare collection or something I do. But, you know, I would say uh, so I'm a bit I love my wife and I love wine. So we've been making wine at home. Uh, nice. And I know this is going to sound but we probably got about 120 bottles of wine at home right now. So, <laughs> <laughs> so we love uh, we love making wine. I love to cook. I love that, you know, moving to Kansas City. It's like the capital of smoking food. Yep. So. Uh, I, you know, I got my smoker and I love tinkering with that. I mean, that's a lot of fun. You could, you could smoke something different every single day of the year and do it, never do it twice the same way. Uh, so that's a lot of fun playing with my kids. I love the exercise. I love to read. I'm a, I'm a huge nerd. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'd say largely that's it. I, I wish I had something more cool to say, but I think that covers it. <laughs> are you, are you still powerlifting or no? Well, no, because I, I've had five knee operations. Four on one. I have one knee that's an absolute unmitigated disaster. Like if you looked at my x-ray, it's like, oh, my gosh, this I mean, I already got some tibial abduction, you know, lateral joint. I wear I wear wedges in my shoe and I probably should be in a loader brace. So I still lift. I feel okay. good. I'm, a, I'm better when I work out. Uh, but not not the way I used to. No, so okay. I'm not uh, I'm not doing ammonia caplets and uh, wrestling singlets and, yeah. and belts. Those days are long gone. <laughs> do, do, do you got a, do you got a, a three lift total you want to share or brag about? Oh, I haven't done that in a really long time. All right, all right. <laughs> yeah, that was back when I was like 17, 18 years old, and it wasn't right. impressive then, and it'd be even less than impressive now. So I'll, I'll, that's unclassified. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's classified. Excuse me. Yeah. <laughs> so what inspires you? You know what, man? That's a good question. Uh, I would say, that, well, professionally, I would say it's um, wanting to do, be better every single day. And it's such a cliche, but I am incessantly reading still. I send out articles to my staff every single week um, to, to read. I'm, uh, I'm inspired by the people that have been doing it longer than me and they're still going and they're still producing and yeah. still in the trenches. Uh, so I would say that's the professional piece that I want to keep doing the very best I can for 
uh, my athletes, again, as cliched as that sounds. A personal standpoint, my kids, uh, my wife, um, I, 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 um, they collectively want to make, make me a better, or I want to be a better man, a better husband, a better father for them. So I think from a personal life standpoint, there, there's no question about that. So. Awesome. Great. Yeah. No, Dan, I, I agree with everything you said that those, uh, I, I would echo all those reasons. Um, so I, I, you know, I, I know you are currently clinically a, a physical therapist, but you do, you are also an athletic trainer. So we're just yeah. curious, you know, what, what does, what does athletic training mean to you? I think athletic training means to me um, putting others before yourself. I'm, I'm not quite sure another more accurate way to say it. I mean, again, I, I'm a PT now largely, but athletic trainer for a number of years leading up to this point. And you know how it is. First one in, last one to leave. Make sure everything's clean. You know, uh, staying late at a hospital for, for people um, if they get hurt, um, even though you may have had plans. Um, staying overnight with a guy that doesn't have any family in the area and you know you don't want him to be by, be by themselves even though you want to be with at home so um i think that's probably the, the the greatest meaning i've got from it uh but i also think too um getting people back to to what's important to them uh you, you, we all talk about we want a job where we help others or you know betterment of society i mean when you have people that are thriving in what they do particularly in this setting where people put their identity in their sport. Like it really saddens me when people, they forget that they're a son, a brother, a sister, a cousin, or best friend, a husband, a wife, a whatever. And they say that they're a, 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 an athlete, whatever sport it is first, you know? So because of their views on that, I, I think um, we have such a critical role in that as athletic trainers that it really makes it a very, very special profession and, and a unique opportunity uh, for those that partake in it. Absolutely. I like Absolutely. it. Thanks I like for it a lot. That. Yeah. Well, uh, Dr. Lorenz, you've been awesome to chat with, and I just want to say thank you for taking the time out of your busy day to share your expertise with us. I know we had some technical difficulties and some timing issues, but, um, so we really appreciate you jumping on the call with us. Um, if viewers can, uh, or if, you, if viewers have any questions for you, are there anywhere that they can reach out for uh, maybe touch base? Sure. Um, I would probably say the best way, and I'll, I'll get back to you. Um, my, my email is uh, danielslorenz at gmail.com, D-A-N-I-E-L-S-L-O-R-E-N-Z at gmail.com. On Twitter, I'm KC Rehab Guy. I used to be KC Rehab Expert, but given the abject failure of experts over the last year and a half, I no longer want to associate myself with the term, so I'm just KC Rehab Guy. Right, so right. I would say probably those are the two best places to find me. Um, if you don't mind real quick, well, first off, thank you so much for having me. I hope your listeners uh, – appreciate what we talked about today, but I, I, I would be remiss if I didn't give a shout out to all my co-authors on this or on this article. I could not have done it without them. Uh, they did a remarkable job. And uh, amazingly, uh, even though I'm getting the podcast here, my parts were edited out the most. Oh, no. <laughs> so, yeah, I know that was the part that everybody cut, the pain, the tendinopathy, all the specific diagnosis stuff, like for bone oh, healing, like that was all cut out. So oh, anyway, yeah, I'm, I'm the guy that's getting all the, the publicity, but <laughs> it was their information that got yeah. published. So yeah. anyway, follow yeah. up study. Yeah, exactly. I had So I had to say that. But yeah, thank you. Yeah, no, no worries. Um, And, and you did you kind of briefly touched on it but do you have a course in bfr do you want to share anything about that i do um uh, so with mike reinald at mike reinald.com oh, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. and we have a we have a course on there um and in fact if, uh, if i can offer a uh if you put bfr 50 in the okay. um in the checkout it'll be 50 bucks off if you want we go into a lot more detail uh, about this uh we we 
we don't get into the weeds. Uh, I insisted with Mike that we not get too nerdy uh, yeah. because we put the rep because there are nerds out there. But mm-hmm. there's also people that just like tell me how to do this and make me feel good that I understand it. Right. So um, we, uh, we I'm really proud of the course. We even just updated it recently just after some feedback coming in about case studies and stuff. Yeah. So uh, it, I, I'm really proud of the course we put together. And you'll see, even though I'm selling the course, I'm very clear on people that I don't like it on and people that we do like it on. So yeah. we try and be honest about our, our uh, use of it, too, because I think it's reckless to say it's it's like anything else. Uh, not everyone is appropriate for every modality all of the time. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. I, I, I don't know. If, I don't think I've taken the recent one. I swear I may have even taken one from Mike before from BFR, but I've definitely taken courses through him. But anyway, listeners, definitely check that out. Um, BFR 50 for, for the discount. Uh, again, Dr. Lawrence, thank you for coming on. This is a great podcast. And to our listeners, thanks for tuning in. Uh, remember to like, subscribe, share, tweet, post, comment, and DM. Until next time, I am Adam Richmond. And I'm Philip Hensler. And this was the Pats Podcast. <laughs>